there's right in the first chapter, there's several clear statements of positional truth. But then we'll, there's a, a lot of implied statements. Uh, we began doing this just a few weeks ago, looking at these implied statements. Number one, this idea of positional truth is all through the New Testament, um, where it says, in Christ, in the beloved, in whom, in him. These are the things the believer is told to be seeking. What does it mean to seek? Does it mean we just go, you, are you there? You know, is, is this like hide and seek? You know, everybody goes and hides in the closet and then everybody has to go find, find this truth. And where are you? And the positional truth is hiding in the closet, counting to 10. I, you know, I don't know. What is this? What does it mean to seek? this truth and where do you seek it you seek it right here in the new testament this is where you seek this truth it's here to be found then once you've found it what do you do with it okay when you play hide and seek you find that person and they're it right you know what to do you go hide again right and that person that got found has to go find you but with this there's something you're told to do with this truth when you find it. You're to set your mind to it. You're to set your mind to it. Now, what's interesting in the book of Colossians is this is where we find this truth of what we're supposed to do with this truth. It tells us in this book, seek it and set your mind to it. And what's interesting about this, why didn't he tell this in the book of Ephesians, where you have 18 positional truths in the first three chapters. Why isn't it told there what to do with it? Right? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because Paul spent three plus years with the Ephesians. He talked to them the whole camp. So he didn't refer to what to do with it. They knew what to do with it. He didn't tell it, rehash everything to everybody he saw. You know how long it would take for Tim to go through his whole, everything he ever taught us if he wrote a letter? You know, he's been here, what, how many years? 30 years? 30 some years? If he if he left and came back and, and was going to have a message that told you, number one, it's impossible. He's taught thousands and thousands of hours here on all kinds of subjects all over the New Testament. But if he was to say, you know, Christ is in you and you are in Christ. And you remember what we taught about that. Bam, that's 20 messages that boom, all come back to your remembrance, right? And you didn't have to go through every detail. Now, with the Colossians, Paul had never met the Colossians. Paul had never met them. So he tells them what to do with this positional truth. If you, if you talk to somebody you've never met before, maybe... And then what really happened here is a student of Paul's went and started this church. And this person comes to Paul, he passes through Philippi, Tim mentioned it earlier today, takes money to Paul, Epaphras. If a student started this church and Paul is hearing about these new believers that had gotten saved and learned through Epaphras' ministry, Paul's kind of checking the boxes saying, hey, did, did, did you tell him this? Did you tell him this? Well, obviously you did tell him it because they're living it. And there's no way they could be living it if you didn't tell him these things. But he still refers to it and puts, gets it down in a letter. And because of that, we have it. 
we have. What to do with positional truth. What are those ways of Paul that be in Christ? We wouldn't know what those ways were if we didn't have the book of Colossians. It really lays down the specifics of what you're to do. What you're to, you're to seek that truth, and you're to set your mind to it. It's that simple. Seek and set. Okay? Now, it goes farther than that in the sense you direct faith that promises are related to that position and related to that person in the heavens. And that would go a step further. But you're to seek and you're to set. That's the start of it. And that's kind of a unique thing about this book of Colossians. Let's begin. Let's just read the first chapter today. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace is unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God, even the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heavens, where have you heard before in the word of the truth, belonging to the gospel which has come unto you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit as it does also in you since the day he heard of it and knew the grace of god in truth as he also learned of epaphras our dear fellow servant who is for you a faithful servant of christ who also declared unto us your love by the spirit for this cause we also since the day we heard it do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, who hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, or the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every or all creation. For by him were all things created that are in heavens and that are upon the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in all things he might have the preeminence or the first place. For it pleased, for he, he was for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heavens, and you that were at one time alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Since ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope, the hope from the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to you, every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a servant. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of the Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Whereof I am made a servant according to the dispensation of God, 
which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to or for his saints, to whom God desired to make known what is the riches from the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man, every individual, every Christian man, every Christian woman. That's interpretive. That's actually there. It's anthropos, not andros there. Every individual, every human, every humanity, complete in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. This is Paul writing from house arrest. That's the first chapter of the book of Colossians. So just by way of stating, this is just by way of introduction, as we begin the book of Colossians. Um, what do I want to say as far as introduction? Maybe we'll come back to that next week. But um, just by way of introduction, let's just point out the clear statements of positional truth in the first chapter. A 1-1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the desires will of God and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren, where? In Christ. It's an interesting statement. First, a position. Then the idea of faithful is a practice, right? But who? In Christ. Saints. You're not in Christ if you're not a saint, right? How do you become a saint? By being in Christ, positionally. And then he brings this idea of faithfulness. I think this points to the fact that not only you have a position, but you're living it. How do you live it? By living in Christ. Okay, That's how you become dependable. Believers at Colossae. Look in verse 12. We won't look at implied statements yet. That's coming. Um, but in verse 12, you have a, what I would state is a clear statement, but it is also going to be interpretive. But it is a clear statement to me. Giving thanks unto the Father who hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. What's that talking about? The light is Christ. The light is Christ. We're in Christ. We, where are we in Ephesians 5? What does it say? We are light. Where? In the Lord. Okay. It's very possible the book of Ephesians and Colossians was written on the same day. Right. It's very possible. Paphras comes from a long way. He meets Paul. Paul says, hey, you're going back. I need to write some letters. I heard it. You, you gave me reports about Ephesus and Colossae. And the Philippians, now I want to write letters. You're going back that way. Take these letters. Those are the prison epistles. Okay. Um, so you got verse 12 there. Verse 13, who hath delivered us from the authority of darkness and translated us into the kingdom belonging to the son of him. Where's that kingdom? 
It's in Christ. Okay? We're in the kingdom of the son of his love. We're in the beloved. This goes back to uh, Ephesians 1.6. Remember, you're in the beloved. You're in the beloved. Ephesians 1.6. I'd like to put that down right there. Again, this is an implied statement. There's implications based on the statement. It's not a in-your-face statement, but I'm putting it in the in-your-face statement because it's so clear to me, okay? Look in verse 18. Looking at the preeminence of the Son. Not only is he the first born but he is the, the head of a whole group of firstborn ones um, we see here in verse 8 and he is the head of the body the church so the body is the church who is the beginning the firstborn from among dead ones that all things he might have the preeminence for it pleased implied the father that in him in christ should all fullness dwell in regard to the church and in regard to the body in regard to christians he is where we get everything we need because we're in him let's say it in a germ truth way he is the way the truth and the life that's how he stated it in the book of john he is the way to the Father. He is the way to life. He possesses it and he bestows it to us. But how do you live it? You got to live in him. You have to live resurrection life so that you can enjoy eternal life. But it's through him. But here, he is the head of the body of the church. That's a positional truth. Where is he? He's at the Father. This is in the glorified humanity of Christ. Or for the body, he's the head. This is a statement of positional truth. And then we come down to verse 28. You have this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay. Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present each one mature or complete where in christ jesus complete mature in christ jesus now this idea when does this happen when is this presentation it's not at the rapture well it is at the rapture but it's not in the air let me say it this way that way it's at the tail end, yes. Because we're not we're not gonna have a position in Christ at the rapture. We won't need a position anymore. Because we're gonna get everything we've been promised. The moment we see him, our position will be ended. It will have served its purpose. Okay. This is a presentation right at that event that we would that we are found to be in Christ exactly what we're supposed to be at that point. Okay. 
Will there be believers at different places of maturity at that event? Definitely. But when we see Christ, we're going to be better than that. You see it? The, the relative maturity will be final maturity. Right now, we all have a degree of maturity. And hopefully, you're living out every ounce of uh, whatever you possibly can be at this point, measured by your knowledge and your activity, you're living out and you're as mature as you can be at that moment. But are you as mature as you can be at the rapture? No, there's still for you stuff for you to do. There's still things to learn. There's better ways to love. There's better ways to express better ways, right? We still have something to do here. We still have more maturing. But did Paul, did he, do you think he got down with the Ephesians? And he, I taught you the whole counsel of God. I'm done. I'm done with you. We're done. Perfection has been achieved. I'm ready to go, Lord. I'm ready to come be with you. Is that how that happened? No. As long as we're still here, Paul strove to teach believers how to live right so that they would then be ready to be presented, mature, as mature as they could be. Does anybody go out here in the orchard and, and hope to grow a rotten apple? No, everything is done in hope. You do it hopefully. You do it optimistically. Nobody plans for a bad harvest. You're hopeful. You're positive that everything's going to happen as it's supposed to. And, you know, the, the orchardist knows way more. I know nothing about farming. I know nothing. You know, I, I say that in a humble way, right? I, I just hear from other people. I've never done it. I've hardly done any gardening. Okay, I've done a little bit. But, okay, you understand what I'm trying to say here? But the orchardist, the person that knows those, how to raise a tree, how to grow a tree, how to take care of a tree, they know, do this. And I know what to expect to happen. Now, when something happens that they that they haven't seen before, it's drier than it's supposed to be, or or pollen hits differently than normal, or the bees act different than normal. What? There's so many factors, but they have a certain expectation that comes from experience of if you do X, Y, and Z, this is the expected outcome. And Paul was the same way. I'm gonna give doctrine to believers i'm going to give promises from god to believers and there's a normal course of action that happens when that is done just like a tree gets water just like a tree gets pesticides just like a tree gets treated for disease and i expect a certain outcome right or thinning, or pruning, or whatever those different things. We expect a certain outcome. Uh, I always liked one of my professors had a saying. He would say, uh, he would get in this thing about uh, not trying to convince people and using apologetics. Now, they all have their place. But he really had this thing where he, he was trying to emphasize to you, just tell people what to believe. Tell them what the Bible says about what to believe, and they'll believe. If they're real believe, you don't have to tell a Christian how to believe. You tell them the promise from God. When their minds are right, he didn't always explain all of that. That hey, they have to be spiritual, and you know. But he explained that other times. 
but you lead a horse to water, what will he do? He'll drink. Right? Lead a horse to water and he'll drink. Give a Christian promises from God, he'll believe. So Paul, he writes to these Colossians, and he he's really mindful to talk about positional truth in this book. It's quite fascinating. I find this a very interesting book because these are believers that Paul never met by face up to this point. I don't know if he goes and visits them later. I would study that out at this point. But up to the point he wrote this book, it says right in chapter two, I have never, as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So that's clearly stated. Now let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. So I would say there's one, two, three, four, five, six occurrences in the first chapter that are clear statements, <laughs> clear statements of positional truth. As we go back to the beginning of the chapter, I want to show you some statements that are implied. Now in verse five, it says, for the hope which is laid up for you in heavens, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth, Belonging to the gospel. Now, what's this talking about? Now, does anybody remember the book of Ephesians and the hope that he talks about in the first chapter? What hope is this talking about? There's a hope that's laid up for you in the heavens. Turn back to Ephesians 1.18. This is why I explained to you that this was probably written on the same day as the book of Ephesians. There's a many parallels between these two books. Tim's even laid up uh, slides for you before of Ephesians and Colossians shown all the terminology, all the parallels between the two books. And they're stated a little differently. The differences point out the difference in the audience. Believers who had heard everything that Paul is now reminding them and believers who had never heard anything from Paul directly. Okay, so you see a very clear distinction when you compare these two books. But in Ephesians 1, we read in verse 17, this is Paul's prayer. And if you remember, we really emphasized when we were in here about how this is a prayer about the believers in Ephesus taking positional truth and learning how that empowers them on a daily basis for the Christian life. So we see here in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, what's this talking about? Is it is, is Paul praying that, that the Ephesians receive the Holy Spirit? No, this is not saying, may you get the Spirit. Okay. This is talking about relationship to the Holy Spirit, where that objective knowledge becomes subject, it becomes true to them, where you own that knowledge. It's your truth. I mean, you guys all understand the difference, right? You can read the New Testament and objectively read it and go, oh, that's true, that's true, that's true. But then when you live it, make it your own. And you know it because you lived it. Okay. Verse 18, that the eyes, that the eyes of your heart being enlightened, that ye may know what is the what? Hope of his calling. Does this line up with Philippians 3? Where it says the, the upward call in Christ Jesus, you bet it does. Again, 
like I said, possibly written the same day. What is the riches of the glory of our inheritance in the saints? Understand that you have resources that you can use. Right? So go back to Colossians. Now, I didn't mention in verse four that when it says faith and love, Paul had heard of their faith and love. Who did he hear it from? He heard about it from Epaphras. He's going to mention Epaphras in a minute. But what do we know you have to practice to actually exhibit faith and love? Positional truth. You have to set your mind on things above. Then that promises that the spirit will take the things of Christ and manifest them. And what are the things of Christ? It's the... Because it's the things of eternal life. He possesses eternal life. And the fruit of the spirit is the outliving of eternal life. And the spirit causes that seed of eternal life to produce. So we keep reading in verse 5. For the hope which is laid up for you in the heavens. Where have you heard before in the word. The word or the discourse. You guys realize the word word. The word logos. Sometimes it means a word. Sometimes it means a speech. That's what it is here. It's a speech. It's a discourse. It's a whole bunch of words. Okay. Word of the word concerning the truth that belongs to the gospel. And now that's a that's a lot. That's a word salad right there. There's a lot right there. Oh my goodness, what is all that talking about? What verse was that? Verse 5. What's this talking about? Well, I'm going to put forth to you that the word here of the truth, the word concerning the truth that belongs to the gospel, I'm just going to tell you what I believe this is, and then we're going to look at some scripture. This is talking about the truth. The truth of John 8.32. It's talking about the truth of how this you can be set free from the sin nature. Christ prophesied concerning it. Concerning it, Paul revealed it in Romans 6. And this is how God uses us to do his work. But he only does this after we're set free. Now, are you always set free? As a Christian, no, you can go under slavery to your sin nature on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Or you can choose to be free on a moment. You have freedom available to you. And this truth belongs to the gospel. What gospel? Oh, whenever it says gospel, it's the same gospel, right? No. This is the gospel of Romans 16, the gospel of Christian stability. The grace gospel. It's the gospel about the identity of the, our glorified, resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ. The fact that we are in him, rooted and grounded. So the, the truth is belongs to that grace gospel. It belongs to that gospel of stability. You can't be stable without the truth. You can't be established 
without being set free from the sin nature. And so let's look at some of these passages. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. So the fact that um, Paul implies this here, it shows that Epaphras communicates to Paul that he had taught them about these things. He had taught them about these things. That's what this implies. <clears throat> so in John chapter 8, you read, in verse 30, and as he spoke these words, many believed on account of him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But notice the shall, in the future. Not today, in the future. They answered him. Now, this is the, there's set two groups, and it very clearly tells you Jesus was speaking only to the believing, believing ones, but then the other group answers him, the unbelieving answers, and they answered him, we be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? You can't free somebody that's already free, is what they're saying, but they're lying, aren't they? This is like talking to your kid, and you, you, you know, you, you, I'm sure you can look at this stuff on the internet, right? Today, you can pull up the internet, kids, they, you know, cute, funny things on the internet or something, and and uh, you look up, and you know, the the kid gets caught. They 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 got cookie all over their face, brownie all over their face, and mom says, "Who ate the cookies?" <laughs> and meanwhile, it's like all over their face. It's all over their clothes, right? Now, that's exactly what these people are. They're, they're at the moment, they're under bondage to Rome. They've been in bondage to uh, the Greeks. They've been in bondage to the Babylonians. They've been in bondage to Egypt. They've been in bondage to the Assyrians. They've been in bondage all over the place. So, old McDonald, the uh, farm of bondage. All right. <laughs> Bondage here, bondage there, bondage everywhere. But in a sense, Jesus could say, no, you're right. Because the bondage I'm talking about isn't physical. It's spiritual. But he doesn't speak clearly for them. He says, Jesus answers them, truly, truly, I say unto you, the one doing sin is a slave of sin one doing sin is a slave of sin so he's telling them what kind of slavery he's talking about he's not talking about political physical slavery he's talking about a personal slavery to your sinful nature slavery to yourself that's not slavery. That's I did what I wanted to do. Isn't that real freedom? Mm -hmm. Right? The pursuit of happiness. That's what we call it in America, right? 
you know, that could be a whole other message. No, that's not uh, freedom. That's freedom to serve your sin nature. I'm not preaching against freedom. I love freedom. I love liberty. I love. I like to live in America. But, but that could be that could be a message for the unnatural, for the unsaved individual. Freedom is living out your sin nature. That's what freedom is for an unsaved individual. It's living out your sin nature to do whatever your heart desires. But Christ prophesies of a freedom to be free from that sinful nature. So you aren't just like all other humanity serving your base desires for self. So Christ prophesies about this here. Now, if you turn to Romans 6, and Tim was here today, I was mentioning to uh, Jim after his message how our three messages I have been dovetailing quite nicely, and we can't do that. We don't get together on the phone and, hey, guys, what's the plan for this week? <laughs> um, you know, we're all coming at these things from different, completely different angles, and, and, they, and the Holy Spirit dovetails them, and they, it's all kind of hitting similar topics. From different angles and uh you know things that i wouldn't even things that you know i'm learning things that are both messages and going okay that, wow oh, thank you god you know it's just kind of really fun but romans 6 now we're not going to read everything in here but you look here the key is in verse 10 and 11 and then down in verse 17 but it says in verse 10 and 11, for in that he died talking about jesus christ he died under the sin nature once now, did he have a personal sin nature? No. But the sins of the world were counted on him. But in that he lives, he lives continually unto God. Now, is that true of us? In Christ, it's true. In Christ, it's true. We live continually unto God because we're seen to be without a sin nature. But it's not true down here. That's why we have confession of sin. That's why we're told, don't do this, don't do that. Don't be a murderer. Don't be a fornicator. Don't, because it's possible that you could do those things as a Christian. Okay. It's also why it says in verse 11, likewise. It doesn't say in the same manner. It says in a similar manner. In a similar manner, when we count ourselves dead to the sin nature, we're not to be doing it like Oh, man, I want to be dead to the sin nature right now. But tomorrow I'm planning up a great day of exhibiting my sin nature. <laughs> you know? In a similar manner to Christ, he didn't say, I'm going to die for the sins, but it's not quite going to be enough. So, you know, I'm going to come back and have to die for him a second time. No. He died for him, and it was enough to take care of all sin. Not only sin, but all unrighteousness, too. He took care of it all in one fell sweep. In a similar manner, when we count ourselves dead to the sin nature, now it's different. One's paying for the sin. One's looking at how the power of the sin nature is being broken. In a similar manner, we're to count ourselves dead to it. We're dead. Death is meant to be final. Right? But in this case, it isn't, isn't it? Isn't it? Because we very quickly can count ourselves alive to the sin nature. 
Now, nobody goes, I'm counting myself alive to this. No, that's not how you count yourself alive at St. Andrew. A little lust pops in, we don't deal with it correctly, and we dwell on it, then we consider it, and then we say, I'm going to do it. And at that point, you're removing yourself from your position in Christ mentally, and you're dwelling on things of this earth. You're setting your mind to things of this earth. And then your this passage becomes applicable to you again. That you need the method to freedom. So likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, not through. That is a satanic perversion in the translation. It's not through. It is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign as a king in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. So, if sin is reigning in your mortal body, who's letting it happen? Is it Satan? That's what I'm getting at. That's exactly what I'm getting at. People all the time are trying to scapegoat and say it's Satan. But does it say, let not Satan, therefore, let sin reign in your mortal body? Is that what it says there? It said, no, it says, let you, you, stop letting sin reign as a king who recognizes the king you ever think about that who's your king is it sin is sin your king is that the king of your life is that the master you obey and really it's you that's the king because the sin nature is you Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. What, what person of God? This is the Holy Spirit. As those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. It shall not lord over you. We are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace? May not be. This goes back to those fundamental understandings of why we don't sin. Is it because of legalism? Is it because there's something that says thou shalt not? No, it's because it's not who we are. We're not sinners anymore. We are sons of God in Christ. We shall not sin because we're not under law. Law is for an unrighteous man. Is were you there today? Law is for an unrighteous man. Is that what we are? Or are we sons of God in Christ? How does the Son of God in Christ act? It acts as one who is alive to God in Christ. And have, we have members that can be presented to God for righteousness, practical righteousness that comes out of our positional righteousness. Verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace may it not be? Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, slaves to obey, his slaves ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But thanks but God be thanked, or literally, grace is by God, that ye were the slaves of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart 
that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin. This, these, this little statement, I always come to this first because it very clearly encapsulates what Christ spoke about in John 8, doesn't it? John 8 says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But nobody practiced that in John 8. Here, we have believers who have practiced that and they've experienced freedom. Everybody see that? So the doctrine is no longer <laughs> prophesied. That doctrine is actualized. It's actually taking place. Okay. Paul explains it and believers are practicing it. They are set free. It's not just prophetic. Now, when I look at the truth, I always like to go back to John 3. And look at this passage. Coming out of this talk to Nicodemus, not Nicodemus, or actually it is Nicodemus, yeah, Nicodemus. We read in verse 15 that the one believing in him should not perish, verse 15, but have eternal life. For God in this way loved the world that he gave his unique, one-of-a-kind son, that the one who believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the unique, one-of-a-kind son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and that men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But the one doing the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested, may be made manifest, that they are what? By God having been wrought, having been by that they are having been worked by God. Boy, what a statement of the truth. The truth sets you free so God can do a work through you. That is a powerful statement. It's an extremely powerful statement. If you don't understand the distinction, many people teach things like, do you work for God? I don't work for God. I'm not working for my salvation. God is doing a work. If I'm working for God, I need to be paid by God, right? And I'm not earning anything. I'm not working for a salvation. I'm not working for a better future. I'm already saved. My future is set. But there are things for me to do. There are works for me to do. And I do do them. Not always. But I'm speaking in a general sense, not specifically about myself. We as Christians do do work. And when you do them free from the sin nature, God is doing the work through you. And that's different than working for God. 
God is working through you. You become an instrument, an intelligent instrument. And that points to the power of God. I think I like to liken it to, uh, have you ever looked at a anthill? Have you ever tried to make it to, to exert your will on an ant? <laughs> have you ever been able to get an ant to do what you want? I mean, yeah, we can pour water on it and, you know, kill an anthill that is in a place we don't want it to be. We can, it just moves, right? Um, but you can spray ant killer on it. Yeah, I, I impose my will. I want dead. I can pour borax all over them, right? All kinds of different things. But I can't tell an ant be good and it be good. I can't tell an ant to go down the street and go to my enemy's house and create havoc at his house, okay? <laughs> I can't do that. But that is an analogy of what God can do through the Christian. He lives inside of us, and he's changing us from the inside out and doing a work through us. We become his instruments, but we, he doesn't doing it, do it by making us robots. It's pretty, uh, quite an astounding thing. He does it by setting us free. There's a popular sentiment in, in the world today. It's... Uh, if you love it, if you love them, let them go, something like that. And if it's real, they return, something like that. That's kind of analogous to this. Okay. God doesn't let us go because we're his slaves, right? But he sets us free. He sets us free. And then we're free to serve. He provides everything to do that service. It's pretty awesome. I suppose we'll work Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths. We thank you that we can just continue to learn about your word, learn how the Christian life operates. And as, as we continue to read through things over and over again, we start to see more connections. And that's such a blessing, Father. We thank you for these things. Amen.